Since I have been at the Foreign Office, Arthur Nicholson noted at Whitehall in May 1914, I have not seen such calm waters. Europe had, in fact, refused to tear itself to pieces over trouble in faraway lands, Morocco in 1905-1906 and in 1911, Bosnia-Herzegovina in 1908-1909, Libya in 1911-1912, and the Balkans in 1912-1913. The Anglo-German naval arms race had subsided, as had the fears about the Berlin-to-Baghdad railway, since Berlin had run out of money for such gargantuan enterprises. Russia had overcome its war with Japan, 1904-1905, albeit at a heavy price in terms of men and ships lost and domestic discontent. Few desolate strips of African or Asian lands remained to be contested, and Berlin and London were preparing to negotiate a settlement of the Portuguese colonies. France and Germany had not been at war for 43 years, and Britain and Russia for 58. Partition of the continent by 1907 into two nearly equal camps, the Triple Alliance of Austria-Hungary, Germany and Italy, and the Triple Entente of Britain, France, and Russia seemed to militate against metropolitan Europe being dragged into petty wars on its periphery. Kurt Reitzler, foreign policy advisor to German Chancellor Theobald von Bethmann-Holweg, cagely argued that given this model of great power balance, future wars would no longer be fought but calculated. Guns would no longer fire but have voice in the negotiation. In other words, no power would risk escalating minor conflicts into a continental war. Instead, each would bluff the adversary up the escalatory ladder, stopping just short of war in favor of diplomatic settlement. Peace seemed assured. Domestically, for most well-off and law-abiding Europeans, the period prior to 1914 was a golden age of prosperity and decency. The red specter of socialism had lost much of its threat. Real wages had shot up almost 50% between 1890 and 1913. Trade unions had largely won the right to collective bargaining, if not to striking, and their leaders sat in parliaments. Many workers had embraced social imperialism, believing that overseas trade and naval building translated into high-paying jobs at home. Germany had paved the path towards social welfare with state-sponsored health insurance, accident insurance, and old-age pensions. Others followed. Women were on the march for the vote. To be sure, there was trouble over Ireland, but then official London hardly viewed Ireland as a European matter. Paris, as usual, was the exception. The capital had been seething with political excitement since January 1914, when Gaston Calmet, editor of Le Figaro, had launched a public campaign to discredit Finance Minister Joseph Caillot, ostensibly over a new taxation bill. When Calmet published several letters from Caillot's personal correspondence, Henriette Caillot became alarmed. First, that correspondence could make public her husband's pacifist stance vis-à-vis Germany during the second Moroccan crisis in 1911. Second, She knew that it included love letters from her to Joseph, 
that showed she had conducted an affair with him at a time when he was still married. The elegant Madame Caillot took matters into her own hands. On 16 March, she walked into Calmet's office, drew a revolver from her muff, and shot the editor four times at point-blank range. Her trial on charges of murder dominated Paris in the summer of 1914. Two shots fired by a Serbian youth at Sarajevo on 28 June paled in comparison.